Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm the host. We are exploring the intersection of spirituality and psychedelics and healing. And today, uh, my guest is Dr. Sandra Parker. And uh, Sandra is a clinical psychologist out of Vancouver. And she has just written an amazing new book called Embracing Unrest, uh, Harness Vulnerability to Tame Anxiety and Spark Growth. Uh, she's been in clinical practice for almost 30 years. She has a real passion to talk about what it means to be your authentic self, free, uh, as she says, of self-sabotage and self-doubt. And you need, you have the seeds of your own healing and growth within you. And I will help you find and cultivate these seeds, enabling you to become a compassionate advocate for your ongoing growth and freedom. That's from her website. And that really connects with me. And so I had a chance to navigate and go through her book, and we have her on our podcast today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Parker. How are you doing, Sandra? I am very excited to be here. It's a real honor to be on your show, Peg. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot. Well, this is great. We have a mutual friend, uh, and John Jaira. <laughs> and uh, so when John, we were out for a, a dinner, and he brought this book out and said, Peg, I don't push a lot of books, but... This is one I think you're going to really like. And he slid it across the table. And I was like, oh, that, you know, looks kind of cool. And then, you know, like you do with these books, you kind of put it on your shelf with the 10 or 12 that are there. And then about a week later, I kind of said, oh, I should maybe take a look at this book that John kind of uh, gave me. And I started to read it. And immediately within the first couple of pages, I was hooked. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is exactly vibrating with where I'm at in my life, what I think is really important in our culture, and where I think the psychedelic movement is really opening up the possibility of the work that you are offering. We need guidance, and you are one of the lights right now. And so I'm really excited to have you on this podcast. So uh, why don't I just dive right in here? And uh, I want to I want to kind of take it and start with a little bit of a different angle. I want to talk about the the shift that you really the way you start, which is kind of shifting from a more of a cognitive behavioral therapy model, which is traditional talk therapy, right? We've got a problem. I'm going to sit with a therapist. They're going to psychoanalyze me and give me new patterns of thinking. You go a completely different direction, which I celebrate because I think cognitive behavioral therapy is very limiting for where we're at in our culture. Why have you made this pivot into somatic kind of work and tracking unrest in our body? So Take me from that shift for me, Sandra, from a CBT kind of model to where you're landing in a deeply somatic way of tracking your body. Well, if I can tell the story that I tell in the beginning of the book about working with people who had um, beautiful humans who, you know, smart, amazing, brilliant people who were crippled with panic episodes and their lives had shrunk down so small that they were you know, engaged in a hospital-based program that I was co-facilitating in my internship, where it was a CBT model, where we had all the sort of psychological education about what's involved and the catastrophic misinterpretations of body sensations. There was a very cool piece of the treatment that was called interoceptive exposure. That's a mouthful, but what it really means is, well, it means experiencing. Um, so what we would do is we would deliberately evoke sensations that mimicked panic. So we were spinning them in office chairs and running on the spot and holding our breath and hyperventilating and breathing through straws. It sounded like a house of horrors, but what the idea was, was in the CBT model, they were saying that it was ex the exposure was actually desensitizing people to this experience. 
But as I was in the room with people, what I saw was not desensitization. I saw people, if if we could hold them, if I could hold that person with my presence, my embodied, grounded, loving, laser beam contact with eyeballs, presence, I'm a, a mountain, and I'm inviting them to feel inside their body as they're feeling something mm. that feels like they're going to die. I mean, imagine how brave these people are, okay, deliberately, you know, evoking these sensations. And then I invite them to go in and feel them. What happened was so stunning. I was, it was like an epiphany for me. I was watching these people. They were not desensitizing. They had a homecoming in that moment. And what they discovered is as their body was feeling as though it was impending doom and they were going to die, when they stayed in that holding environment that I had co-created with them, they discovered something so remarkable, which it was at the heart of the human condition. When something is happening that we don't like, if we stay present for us, we we bear it. And more than that, we emerge more deeply ourselves. Mm. So, I mean, it was, it was stunning to me. I felt like I was seeing something that I didn't quite know what it was at the time. It's 30 years ago now, um, but I knew it was critical. It wasn't just for panic, uh, people with panic. It was the whole human condition that when we're up against a limit to control, something isn't the way we want. I mean, just the humanness of that, mm. that our instinct is to brace and avoid mm -hmm. and to do the opposite and actually experience that moment, not go into a narrative, uh, mm. not, not, not worry or catastrophize, but nor deny, minimize, tough it out, you know, soldier on and endure do this weird, crazy thing, which was come home into this experience where you have limits, where you can't make it the way you want wow. it to be. Stay there, stay there, love yourself right there. And, and the thing is, these feelings, they weren't problems to be solved. <laughs> this was information and energy about the human condition, about limitless consciousness in finite matter, in finite, you know, infinite consciousness in finite matter. It was this marriage. And that's our that's our sacred task is is to be that intersection right mm. so but i didn't see i mean i'm making it sound like oh i saw it then it took me many years of working with people and refining this idea to realize that there's something so human in this invitation to come home that if we understand it it's it's a it's a key to uh, to our transformation yeah a, wow you know you you that was incredibly beautiful how you unpack that. And there's so many things going on in my mind right now of connections that I want to make, but I'll stick with the script here a little bit because I really want to set up the table for us over the next little while. But I, you mentioned this uh, really important concept in interioception, this ability for us to feel on the inside that our, you know, our breathing, our heart rate, you know, um, what does it feel like you, you had this, you had this line in the, in the book where it's actually a practice where you, you just get clients to track things like hunger. How often do you actually feel hunger? What does it actually feel like in your body? Like pay attention. Don't just shove something in. Listen to it. What does it actually feel like? Is it a tightness? Is it a grumble? Like what is it? What about when you are cold? What does that actually feel like? So you start tracking these interoceptive abilities that our body has that we just are 
kind of unbeknownst to we we don't pay attention to it at all but our bodies are giving us signals every second of the day and yet we live in our brains live in our minds particularly in western culture we're so dissociated from our bodies our bodies have become a dangerous place and for those mm. who have experienced trauma the bodies are a very dangerous place so the even the idea of sitting for meditation for a minute is almost impossible for most people they can't do that because to sit with your bodily sensations is trauma. And so they don't even know how to do it. They don't even know where to start. So can you talk through interioception, this ability to be able to track sensations in our body and why that's such a vital, important task? You know, just like with you, I feel like, oh, there's about six things I want to say about those gorgeous things you just said. But um, yes, I'll focus in on your question, which is what, what am I talking about with interoception? I mean, it's so... Um, hilarious in a way to me how physical it turns out being a a, a depth psychotherapist is it, it it is not this narrative in our minds that really is where people have most of the trouble yeah, yeah. it is in this this sort of skittering off the surface of our experience that as you say you have some kind of clue to be able to say i'm hungry and then you you know go eat you have something but nothing that we give ourselves space to actually feel um, we we essentially get the bare minimum of the data and then skitter off. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. I think our, our bodies are set up to help us navigate this strange thing of matter. And, you know, we don't want to be bumping into sofas and things. So we just get the bare minimum of what the data is. And the brain has all these shortcuts that are removing us from experience. But at the end of the day, I think experience avoidance is the true epidemic that's creating mm. our suffering. Everything mm. we do to not feel what it feels like to be here. Okay, so well, well, I, I got to just stop because okay. <laughs> that's a great summary and I don't want to miss it. You okay. just threw that line out and it's like the, the most amazing bomb drop. Because you, what you're arguing is you're saying our inability to feel as a culture is is what is at the basis of all almost all of our mental health challenges, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, uh, PTSD, all of it, all of it is connected to our inability to feel. And when you said that, that just gave me like shivers down my body because I vibrate and believe that so strongly. And that's exactly what your book is about. So I just want to let listeners know that we, we I'm just going to put a pin in that because we're going to go back into emotions and why they're so foundational. But thank you for just summarizing that powerful statement, Sandra. So take us back into interioception. Well, just that um, we do have in our insula, we have this, and I'm sure there's other parts of the brain that we don't know about, but we are meant to be able to perceive our inner state. It's very important. Um, uh, in fact, I find it interesting that in the um, vagus nerves, we have 80% of them are afferent, which means that the information's coming up to us and mm -hmm. only 20% are efferent, which are the command top down, leg mm -hmm. lift, mm -hmm. arm mm -hmm. move, right? But 80% of the information is bottom up. So it gives us a little bit of a hint, like maybe we should be listening more than commanding yeah. our bodies, right? Yeah. Um, so, and I think the thing that's very cool about how physical our inner world is, is um, the idea, it's so different from insight and cognition. You get an idea and you've got it. It's a one and done. How great. No mm. wonder we love our brains, right? I just, I now know where, you know, Soweto is or something, right? Mm. I've got it. But actually, change and growth are experiential, which means we need to feel what it is that we are 
um, experiencing in our bodies in order to change neural pathways that are essentially the habit mm -hmm. roots of our um, of our systems. And we need to do our uh, experiential process again and again and again, which mm -hmm. is a bit frustrating to our cognitive mind. But if you think about it, you can't just feel thirst once, have a glass of water and say, well, I don't have to drink again for the rest of my life, or I slept last night, I don't have to sleep mm -hmm. again, or, you know, I, I had a meal, or hey, I breathed earlier today, I'm done. <laughs> You know, uh, these are we're, we sort of understand that the physicality of being in these bodies means that this is a, a sort of a, a repeated, consistent like practice of being embodied. And this piece around our emotional life, our inner life, it's it's so physical. I mean, look at how, look at the word feeling. Right. We mm -hmm. use the word feeling. You know, what are mm -hmm. you feeling? Tell me how you feel. We call it feeling because we feel it. Right. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'll ask someone, um, you know, what, you know, tell me about that feeling of sadness. And they will tell me the story about the feeling of sadness, mm -hmm. like why they're sad. Mm -hmm. um, they'll tell me their idea about the sadness. They'll tell me the, the, you know, the history behind the sadness, but they won't tell me what it feels like in the body. It's the hardest. They, they look like they blink. It's like, oh, you want like what it like physically feels like it's like yeah right yeah. and and unrest is physical too this signal this wake up call mm -hmm. it's it's physical so it's calling us home to be able to physically feel these emotions that you alluded to earlier mm -hmm. that are the engine for our growth I'm I'm gonna read a couple of quotes because we you you mentioned the word unrest and uh, that was a new word for me I I've heard you know um, lots of different kind of kind of signaling to that kind of concept. Peter Levine in somatic experiencing has you get a language around this and uh, lots of different kind of folks kind of, but this was the first time that, that someone has framed it as unrest and I really liked it. And so this is what you say. Unrest announces your point of contact with vulnerability, disrupts you. Unrest can nudge you with a quiver or a held breath or it can derail you as your heart pounds, your stomach knots up and you are tongue tied. It's a spike of discomfort meant to get your attention at a key moment as your longing bumps up against limits. It's an immediate sharp signal that you are on the precipice of a choice. Tune in and gain access to your inner resources and wisdom or tune out and suffer in all the ways you escape your truth. Wow. Sandra, I just love that concept of, of unrest linking this opportunity for growth at every moment that we are feeling the stirring in our body that, that, that we want to run away from, or we want to mute, or I want to go to my, my social media and I want to, or I want to take a drink or I want to watch Netflix or I, you name it. Our culture has every elixir under the sun to prevent you from feeling that unrest, but that unrest is calling you. And you are, so kind of take me into when, kind of how you framed and got to this concept of unrest as kind of this experience in your body here and now that offers you a choice to either grow or to shut down. I'm glad I wrote that piece because I said that clearer in the book you, than I would you, have said it. It was you. so beautiful because <laughs> your writing, by the way, just your writing is beautiful. I love how you write and turn phrases. Well, I like talking, but um, it was good I wrote that. But but uh, yeah, I, I think it's so, there's something quite powerful to me about how 
loving these animals are how how i mean look they have a prime directive to keep us alive that's their first job their survival so um we are going to default when we get this signal because the first job is keep us alive so the this this wake up call um this this incredible precious alarm um the first reaction any normal person is going to have is to want to avoid because that's mm. a survival reaction and uh what do i want to say about that i guess just that the the maybe we can get to this later but the difference between fear anxiety and unrest that distinction is 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 critical for people mm. to be able to understand that that they are physiologically indistinguishable but they are very different creatures and need very different things from us mm. but if i go back to sort of the origin of this when i was first studying psychodynamic experiential psychodynamic therapy um, they have a term, as you alluded to with Peter Levine and others, they had a term called signal anxiety. Mm -hmm. And what they were referring to is that there's this indication in the body of rising inner conflict that is this activation of the nervous system that for the therapist is very important to notice because that's actually a sign that something real is coming up. Um, and, but the theory in the psychodynamic world is that it's about conflict, about feeling, which of course it, it, it can be if you've had a tough childhood or trauma, like you alluded to, but what I feel I'm, I'm offering is a, is an idea that is sort of underneath all of that. Even if you were parented by the 12 humans who didn't, you know, who were perfect parents, mm -hmm. um, you know, with no trauma history, I think it's wired in the animal of us that um, uncertainty and limits to control are um, aversive to us, that, that it, it, you know, we, we come with longing, we're wired with longing, mm -hmm. it's a beautiful thing, I think the soul comes into life longing to experience, I think that's the whole purpose of being here is to experience everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, mm -hmm. you know, I, I want to jump off cliffs, I want to lick the floor, I want to <laughs> love, I want to lose, you know, everything. And of course, the body, who's our guardian saying you need to stay alive is saying, uh, you're not going to have very mm -hmm. long here if you mm -hmm. do that. So there's this, I think, inherent, I think, in the human condition, we, 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 it's inherent and inherited, that we are in this, you know, conflict that doesn't mm -hmm. have to be trauma or childhood injury or any such thing it, it can be amplified by that but just being human as emotion moves me as i am in touch with mm -hmm. my limits to control over things there's this spike and it's calling me into the moment mm -hmm. if i can bear what that feels like if i can allow myself to feel the protest mm -hmm. you know of, of, i i don't like the way it is and i i i punch the heavens until mm -hmm. my arm gets tired and my hands drop and the palms go up. And this is a, a such a powerful mm -hmm. gesture that I've seen thousands of times in my office. Sometimes it's as overt as this. Sometimes it's just a small sort of flick of the wrist mm -hmm. as the hand is going upward, but it's in hands bigger than mine. In that moment, um, we surrender the argument with reality and we're now in what is. And that's, of course, very grievous. And the pain of mm -hmm. that is physical, um, yep. just as the protest energy is physical. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, in the in the words of developmental psychologists, we go from mad to sad, which is what mm -hmm. we're always trying to help our kids do. But we need to do it too. go from the protest to the surrender. 
And then there's a still point and it's so physical. Mm. Even then at the end of my wave of grief, there's a resting place. And if I can stay there and wait, mm. these tendrils of life force sort of come toward me. I don't have to go get them. There's these sort of energy feelings that come into me that allow me to sort of feel at minimum, it is what it is, which is a trite expression, but it's so beautiful in a way because I'm out of the argument. It is what it is. So at the minimum, I'm accepting whatever this thing is that I wish were mm. different. So I'm I'm no longer in a futile tilting at windmills place. But often something else happens where I might feel grateful that I accept what I don't have, but suddenly it appears to me what I do have. And often I can't experience what I have available until I've released my grabby paws yeah. of trying to get what I can't get control of. Oh <laughs> man, you, what you're you, what you're talking about, you know, that experience of the stillness of allowing the emotion to move, to feel it. But then there's this drop out of a quiet, of, a, of an energy that comes in that's full of gratitude, full of acceptance, and a, maybe a new perspective that comes. I mean, I, I have seen this most in my in my psychedelic experiences, working with uh, therapists and counselors that, that know how to help guide you into these spaces. And then particularly with, for me, with psilocybin. And it's in these moments where you set intentions and you sit in the heavy stuff, you know that this is not about fixing anything. Psychedelic no. therapy, assisted psychedelic therapy is not about fixing. It's about staying with, it's about trusting, it's about being open, it's about letting go, it's about acceptance. This is exactly what you're talking about. We're just having to use a plant medicine that allows people to get out of their head and into their body. See, that the problem I think I have is this. I think your book is brilliant, but I think it's, it's I think our culture is, can really has a tough time accessing their body. Yes. And I think we're going to need some scaffolding. We're going to need some help. And that's where you need a therapist. That's where you need a counselor. That's you need a psychologist. Or that's where you need group work. Or that's where you need plant medicine to really soften you, to be able to trust your body and to get into these vulnerable places. So I I, I just love that you're, the way you talk sounds so deeply spiritual and so uh, like a psychedelic experience, but it doesn't have to use plant medicines. You, you, are, you are seeing this happen with people, your clients that you're working working with, helping them slow down, track into their body, feeling the unrest, sitting with it, holding it, even having it being witnessed by others and validated, and then having it kind of shift and move. I think that process, I'd love to actually go deeper into that process. Actually, you have a, a, a quote here where you talk about what's your ringtone. <laughs> okay. And it's a practice. And, he's, and you say this, like your phone, unrest has a unique and personalized ringtone that lets you know it's just for you. All of us are signaled with constricted muscles and feelings of agitation, but your body sends you specific sensations that are particularly yours. Your job is to learn those signals so you can quickly respond to your call. Be curious and really listen for your ringtones, the specific patterns of bodily sensations that arise when you are being invited to attend to your inner truth. You have hundreds of muscles and you go on. So what's your ringtone? Can you take, <laughs> me, take me into the ringtone? What is yours, Sandra? And then I'll, I'll talk to you about mine. Well, I but uh, so for me, my diaphragm jumps up, my shoulders go up. 
Um, but my thumbs go up, which is just funny, right? So I'll, if I'm on an elevator and there's like, you know, 12 people and we're all jammed in with coats and bags, I will notice my shoulders up, my diaphragm up and my um my thumbs up, which is just the funniest thing. I don't. I, I think it's connected to the anterior line where I'm mm. going to start protecting. Yeah, protecting. Right? So yeah. it's got that uh, that yeah. quality to it. Um, but there's definitely this upward kind of. Um, uh, those are sort of the the and certainly a held breath. So um, you know, I guess that goes with the jumped up diaphragm. So those are my like hot mm. ones. I mean, of course, we have over 400 striated muscles and all of those, you know, essentially, sometimes people will say they notice something, say a lump in the throat or a tightening across the chest, but you know, really, I'm good from the waist down. And I think that really speaks to our bias that I'm only going to notice it if it crosses a threshold to, you know, quite unpleasant. Mm. And that the, the, uh, the threshold that I'm looking for is to be curious that, you know, as soon as it's anything other than kind of melty, relaxed, mm. you know, to sort of be willing to care earlier because the sooner you notice, the easier it is to soothe. It's like trying to soothe a baby that you've ignored until she's, you know, in a mm -hmm. full tantrum. It's going to take a lot longer, yeah. right? So this animal's asking earlier, you know, just with a little bit of a agitation, um, I just, it's, it's kinder mm -hmm. <laughs> to notice earlier. So uh, but yeah, so but different people. Some people, it's a lump in the throat. Yeah, for me, it's the jaw. Like my uh -huh. jaw, my jaw tenses up, and I notice that I'm kind of getting like my. I clench my teeth a bit. And I just notice a tightening on my jaw, and then I, I'm beginning to ask myself. Once I started tracking that, then I'm paying attention to that signal, going, "Oh, wonder what's happening." I don't even know cognitively what's happening, but what my body is telling me is there's something happening, and I'm my my jaw's tense. And I'm like, "Ah, okay, take a breath." get into this moment, Peg, what's happening right now? What's going on in your world? And then I'll be like, oh, right. I've got this a thing coming up. I've got this deadline. I've got this. I'm nervous about how this is going to go. And then I can get, you know, I, you know, I practice things like rain, right? Which is yes. this yes. beautiful tool, you know, recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. I mean, this is beautiful work by Tara Brock, who, yes. you know, uh, radical acceptance, which is really this, a tool to sit with unrest, right? Yes. Oh, yes. this emotion is with me, you know? Oh, anger. Welcome. You're here today. Okay. I wonder what's going on. Right. Like a, like a, an unwelcome guest at a party that you're like, I didn't really invite you, but you're here in my house now. Okay. You know? And so a welcoming that guest and then, you know, uh, you know, and then in, in getting in, getting curious about that. So I get curious about what's happening and then I bring some love and nurture to that part. I'm, for me, it's, it's usually there's, it's connected to, you know, parts of me that get agitated and nervous and and there's you know part of my narrative but beginning to track these sensations of tightness of stress of fear of where we feel it in our body and connecting that into uh, our ability to sit with okay allowing that emotion is feels like a really great beachhead to understand how to work with unrest well, you know, I think just the way that you're even talking about it it's such a shift to 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 care about ourselves in that embodied way to not just have a platitude maybe that we go to and everything's okay there's nothing wrong with saying nice things i like adding you know mm -hmm. they're there or everything's okay mm -hmm. but that's like icing the real thing is this quality of presence that you're talking about where 
and and the complexity of it, by the way, because you you mentioned this welcome, this welcome, but you also mentioned, and there's another part of embracing, and I really appreciate that because the complexity is the point. It's not that we're going to become, you know, my guy back here. <laughs> um, I I don't think that's going to happen for me. But what I want to be able to do is make room for this mixture that there's. I do have this capacity to hold and to welcome what I don't want, but I have the part of me rather adamantly stamping her feet, not wanting it. She's welcome too. So it's, I think it's that, that what we're kind of doing with unrest is we're recognizing that, um, it, this longing and limits, like in that moment, you're doing this amazing thing, Peg, where you're actually pausing and saying, huh, like, I don't even know what's going on, but my body's saying something's going on. And it, I love this animal and it loves me so much. So I'm actually going to take a moment. Like we just don't do that. But to appreciate that in that moment, like my little precise entry point there is longing and limits. Just what is it I long for right now? Mm. You know, freedom, peace, energy, a good night's sleep, my cat not to barf on the <laughs> carpet. You know, I don't know, the kids to get along, get through the to-do list, this podcast to go well, yeah, yeah. whatever, right? And then be opening myself to, all right, Sandra, list five things that could get in the mm. way of that. You know, suddenly um, the Wi-Fi goes down mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, you know, there's, there are so many factors, you know, I mean, I have an aneurysm in the middle of this, uh, you know, you've got a little bug there that's trying to stop our, our, our interview, right? Like all the factors that we don't even think about that are, um, and I don't say that so that some of my more anxious folks um, start to, oh, oh my God, you're thinking you're bringing up all these possible bad things. It's like, no, I'm, I'm opening my mind to the many forces that come into play in addition to my longing and my efforts and my good intention and my will and my skill mm. and everything I'm bringing, which I should bring. I shouldn't just sit on the sofa because I don't have a hundred percent control. It doesn't mean don't do nothing. Um, but I'm honoring or allowing for that forces outside of me will contribute to the outcome with pretty much everything mm. that I'm doing. Um, you know, and I have many examples of that. Like, you know, you can say, well, you picked your, your clothes today. I did that myself. Me mm. did that myself, but mm. you know, it didn't fall on the floor and your little puppy didn't lift a leg, you know? Mm. Um, right. So, I mean, there are so many things that are contributing and in a way, rather than making me feel anxious or fearful, that opens me to gratitude. Mm. How often as I reach my hand out for as far as it can go for my longing, and there's a gap between my reach and my grasp, as they say, that the universe comes up to meet me or it doesn't. Mm. But in so many examples in our daily life, the universe meets me, I get to the meeting on time, the food gets on the table, Mm. I don't you know, mm-hmm. trip down the stairs, like so many examples of how generous. And and then so that when the times do occur, which they do, where we are thwarted, where there's loss, where there's a violation, um, we have a capacity to see it in this more, you know, big picture um, of, of all these, you know, blessings and, and, you know, gifts of the universe meeting us. And then, of course, mm. life is life and there's loss mm. as well. Yeah, you have, um, you kind of situate this kind of uh, unrest and these practices. And it's the first kind of, the first half of the book is is really kind of practical. It's like, 
you know, you have the the theory and the understanding of the somatic part of it, but then you really get into uh, like the practical things. How, how do we do this? How do we track this? And then you situate it in kind of, you have these three concepts of authenticity, resilience, and connection. And those three kind of become pillars of kind of how this is going to be played out in our lives, right? And I think these are um, really th beautiful kind of uh, rivers, I guess, that feed into what it means to be a, a healthy person, right? That that we, I mean, I, uh, Gabor Mate in his new book um, just came out in September. He he really parallels this, you know, the the fact of uh, we grow up and we long for attachment, right? We long for attachment from our parents, our primary pair caregivers, and we will do anything to get that attachment. We have to to survive. But then there comes a time in our life, you know, in our teenage years, where we have to find authenticity, and so there. There's this spectrum between attachment and authenticity, and most of us don't ever have the healthy enough attachment to, in order to explore what does it mean to me, me, my full me, my full, you know, the expression of my ideas and who I want to be. We and so we de-self, we push down our authentic ourselves in order to fit into culture, in order to fit into our family, in order to be acceptable. And so we don't really have authentic lives. We have these lives that are. Um, marred by culture because we live in a culture that we haven't attached to properly. And so mm. we have this re so you really talk about authenticity as really a, a starting place for us. You, we have unrest invites us into not uh, an expression of who am I going to be to please the other? It's who am I going to be in my, in my truest self, not my, you know, your best self, your truest self, your most authentic self. And so that to me is such a, a warm invite that unrest actually is, is, is what I'm feeling in me is calling me to say, this doesn't align with who you are, Peg. There's something going on that, that is not fitting your authentic you. And I, and I love that way of framing it. Can you comment on that concept of authenticity? Well, uh, authenticity, resilience, and connection are the fruit of your courageous willingness to be present and welcome the pain of emotion. And I need to say pain because it is painful. Even I remember holding my dear friend, Cheryl's daughter, at, at, she was five days old and I don't have my own children. Um, so I don't have that experience for, of, of my own, but um, holding Alexandra in my arms at five days old, I honestly thought that my sternum was going to crack open. Mm. It was so painful. Like it, hurt and it was my heart was swelling up with this love that was so painful and this joy at this welcoming of this human um mm. and that's you know she's 25 mm. now that's <laughs> a long time ago mm. um so you know emotion is painful and of course i you know i double dog dare you to find me a person who really wants to approach things that feel like threat and pain. I just think it's totally normal to jump back from that. So we're, we're, I'm, I want so much compassion around this invitation to embrace unrest because it, it doesn't come naturally. It isn't what we're wired to do. And yet I think something deep in our spiritual technology is coming to the fore here. And I want to give this message to the world that we have this, this, this inner technology to facilitate, foster, accelerate our growth as individuals and as a species that if we can bear the, the pain, the truth of our emotion, the fruit is these three things, authenticity, resilience, and connection that 
um, that it's it's the unrest is the herald. It, it, it's mm. it's so funny because it's actually not the important thing. The, the these river this the the waves of emotion that will lift you and carry you and take you to a new place. That's the gold. But the the reason unrest is important is it's the limiting factor. If you don't address mm. it, you'll be ejecto buttoned out, yep. boom, yep. into all those defenses, yep. right? That you talked about earlier: eating, drinking, shopping, scrolling. So you know. Um, it, 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 unrest is highlighted because without mm -hmm. it, we won't access, we won't go in and do this counterintuitive thing of feeling. But authenticity is <laughs> the, the, the truest truth about me is how I'm going along to do, 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 do here's Sandra and here's reality and it touches me. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I'm touched. Mm -hmm. So when I'm touched, I'm moved. And we even mm. use that with emotion is it moves us, right? Yeah, so yeah, I'm touched yeah. and moved by being in this life. And if I won't allow myself to be touched, if I'm braced, if I'm defended, if I'm barriered, mm -hmm. you know, great. My tombstone says she made it through untouched, <laughs> right? But the rest of us, those who want to be changed by life, who want to have actually been here and not just been in the audience, um, that that we are have to be willing to actually be affected, touched, mm -hmm. moved by life. It's so vulnerable because you don't know how high the wave's going to go mm -hmm. and you don't know which shore it's going to land on. It will mm -hmm. be a, a shore of you, something true about you, but you there's no steering wheel on a wave. You know, yeah. you can get good at riding the the right. surf and you can have a good core, but there's no steering wheel. So that it's so vulnerable. Emotion is a force moving you physiologically changing your biochemistry your bloody flow your your te your temperature and you're not the boss of it i mean that's crazy mm -hmm. right <laughs> we're so vulnerable so authenticity is that you can directly experience yourself as like for me, if I smell freshly cut grass, I don't know. I'm I'm like a dog. I just want to roll. I mean, mm. I have to, I'm driving the car. I have to make sure I'm really concentrating not to kind of drive toward that park where they're cutting the grass. This is such a, a you mm. know, delicious experience. So to, to, to sort of be in touch with that and moved by life and connected to that, um, that's how we know who we are, yeah. is that that's I'm touched by life in those ways. And then resilience is the fruit also, because in being able to go from protest to surrender to acceptance, that is definitional for, for what resilience is, which is the holy grail of mental health. Mm -hmm. And then and then connecting with others, our ability to be intimate. I mean, <laughs> being authentic mm -hmm. and resilient means I know I'm part of this human experiment. Yeah. And uh, I, I, yeah. I see and me in you one, and you and me. And yet that connection, I, I, you know, that's probably the one that I, um, I probably spent my entire life um, trying to create um, communities of connection. You know, I've been, uh, I've been an ordained minister. I've started churches. I've done work in, um, in nonprofits. And it's all with this longing to create transformative experiences for people. And because I know that connection is foundational to people's growth and well being. And um, there's a book that I came across um, a number of years ago. And I'm going to, I'm going to forget it right now, but it'll come to me. It's called, Ooh, What's his name? Uh, it's got me. It's all about depression and anxiety and the rise of SSRIs. And um, oh, 
I'm going to have to think about it because it's a, it's an important book to, uh, you know, that we need, I can't even remember it right now, but in this book, and it'll come to me in this book, he, he, the author charts the rise of SSRIs over the last 10, 15 years. And he really looks at, it's called lost connections. There ah. it is. Lost connections is the name of the book. And then he just came out with a new one actually, uh, on, uh, lo lost focus, uh, which mm -hmm. is all about our, yeah. you know, inability to focus now. And he, so rather than kind of putting the blame on individuals, like, Hey, Hey, you know what? You're just, you're not resilient enough. You're not tough enough. Well, you know, you're, you're getting depressed and you should just kind of snap out of it, which is obviously not, not, a, not helpful at all. He, he looks at kind of what's happened in culture, in Western culture, that all the places that we used to find circles of connection, not like hanging out with people, going to a movie. We're talking about places of small, intimate groups of 10, uh, where we could sit around a fire or sit around something and look at each other. Mm -hmm. uh, in the eye and feel mm -hmm. connected. So there could have been spiritual communities, could be churches, these kinds of things. Um, but all of those are declining. And so yes. what's happening is uh, as we no longer have places of intimate connection, places where we can be vulnerable with our emotions and have a, someone else hold that emotion and not try to fix it. As we have that, we become resilient and we find connection and we feel heard and are known. But as those in culture have dropped down, the rise of anxiety and depression has gone off the charts. And SSRIs have come on and as, as a way to help people not feel that desperate longing for a connection. So that just gets muted by these SSRIs. Sometimes they're helpful, but a lot of times they replace these ancient ways that we have regulated with one another, our nervous systems. And what yes. you're talking about is nervous system regulation. Yes. This is all about the limbic system. <clears throat> and you, in your biography, I, I said this before to you when we were chatting, I really love that you had, you referenced in your bibliography, A General Theory of Love, uh -huh. which is this really uh, a phenomenal book uh, by these psychiatrists, really looking at the kind of the biology of our nervous system. And mm -hmm. in it, they argue that we are unique as mammals, is that we have limbic systems that were not unlike reptiles that are just, as you said, step over their young to get the, you know, to get the food, we will die to protect our baby. No, that's yes. an incredible concept, right? So yes. that means there's a part of our brain that's lighting up when we feel seen, when we feel known, when we feel heard and understood. <sighs> and that is essential for our thriving. And in our culture right now, I would say 90% of people do not have that. They do not have small, intimate circles where they can be honest, known, and vulnerable, and someone isn't going to try to fix them or say, well, that's nothing. You should hear what happened at work yesterday or whatever, right? Just that doesn't exist. And so we're, we're in this epidemic of a mental health crisis and we wonder what's the problem. And we just keep putting more kind of drugs at it and more psychotherapy and it's not helping. And so yeah. what I think is that we need new approaches. We need approaches like yours that, that go after it from bottom up processing from a biological nervous system, limbic way of doing it. We need people in small groups. We need people mm -hmm. connecting. Yes. And that's for me why, uh, you know, we really started this process called gathering groups, yes. which is a 12 week process for people to emotionally regulate 
online using Zoom technology in a very trauma-informed kind of structured way where they're taught how to respond to each other in a circle. It's the old yes. talking circle, right? These sacred circles. And then we get these people to do psilocybin together in a group retreat format where their hearts become open and they have this really huge limbic connection with each other and they can go into depths in their, their mm -hmm. life that they've never been able to access. Sometimes yes. 10 years of therapy, they can't get there. But when you're seen and held by a group of people that know and love you just because they have a shared experience around this, you can really open up and go deep. So I loved your reference to uh, this limbic system about what it means to regulate with other human beings so our nervous system slows down and gets in tune, in resonance with each other. That was a very powerful concept for me. Well, and it's so powerful how you have front-loaded your groups so that you have scaffolded people with these, I want to say capacities, because uh, they're not cognitive learnings, uh, to, to hold space for another person, because we trigger each other. One of the points of, of a general theory of love is this limbic resonance, so that I feel in my body, if I am in my body, that's a big F, because people often aren't, they're telling stories mm -hmm. while the other person is spilling their guts. But if I am actually in my body while you're spilling your guts, my guts are spilling. And so what's my capacity to bear this resonance in under my skin? Because I'm not giving you advice or telling you to suck it up or telling you to count your blessings because I'm a bad person. I'm doing it because I'm overwhelmed and mm -hmm. I can't bear what's happening inside me. So I'm going to put you out of my misery. I'm going to shut you down so I don't have to feel. So what you're doing in these groups with front loading it like that is, is actually growing muscles for bearing pain uh, before you do the psychedelic experience, which is, I just think so radical and so potent, um, you know, because I've seen some iatrogenic things with people doing these weekend ayahuasca things or whatever, mm. coming into my office and feeling suicidal after because they haven't got any structure whether it's these yep. ga a gathering connection with the attachment or any muscle inside themselves because um you know it was a potent powerful life-changing experience but they couldn't hold it you know yep. afterwards so i think there's something about the holding before and the 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 practicing before so that the experience can not just land, but lodge, you know, yeah. it has a place to, to be. Oh, you know, and I, and I really appreciate you talked about, you know, uh, th this uh, ayahuasca and some of these things, uh, uh, what's happening. And I, and, you know, I think there's a beautiful place for, for all the medicines. And I think there's, you know, and particularly the people that are used to that tradition and understand that tradition and want to work in those kind of cultures, huge opportunities for, for growth. For me, I don't feel comfortable with that medicine or call to that medicine because it's not indigenous to this place. And, mm -hmm. and it, it seems to, um, in kind of almost be like tourism kind of stuff. I'm just going to go to Peru, do ayahuasca. It's going to be awesome, man. Come back. And I'm like that I'm not interested in that at all. And if anything, I think it's really dangerous. And mm -hmm. I'm going to say that on this podcast, because I'm, I'm going to out myself in, in that. I think psychedelics are incredibly powerful substances, but they need to be done in contexts that can be integrated properly back into your real life. This is not just going to Costa Rica for a great experience. And then that was great. I did it. And I'm back. 
I think what you're seeing in your office is the downline of some of that, where they don't have supportive structures at home. They're not in supportive relationships. They're not in group uh, integration models. It's just this thing that cracks them open, which it does. And now they've got no place to go with that. And no Mm -hmm. one is willing to sit with them in Mm -hmm. their pain that's now coming up that needs to be processed. Mm -hmm. And so for, for me, 12 weeks of prep is really important before you're going to do a medicine experience mm-hmm. as a group. And then we're going to even suggest you get into another process to really help you integrate that. And so for me, um, yeah, I'm I'm really glad you're bringing that up because it this isn't just uh, psychedelics are here to save the day. Mm-hmm. It's when they're done in a beautiful uh, context of set and setting and, mm-hmm. and it gives you scaffolding to prepare and integration material to be able to kind of hold those those big emotions after, they can be really helpful. But if not, what we're even finding is, and this is uh, some of the research coming out of the Synthesis Institute, uh, Dr. Uh, there is two, two researchers, there was actually a whole team, but one of them is Dr. Rosalind Watts. And she has just indicated that She's really concerned. She came out of uh, clinical research trials um, at in England yeah. um, with Dr. Robin Cartwright-Harris. And so they were doing clinical trials with psilocybin. And her concern was that even in the therapeutic context where there's two therapists and you're working with them and you do three sessions before to prep them, you have this big high-dose session, then you have three sessions after. What she was finding, and I just chatted with her last week, she was saying, Peg, you know what's happening is this attachment that these people have never had, what happens in a psychedelic experience is they attach so strongly with their therapist in this moment, right? Because they become the new mother that I just, you know, and then after three sessions, they're gone. Sorry, um, that $250 an hour, we're up and, you know, good luck. And they don't have the money, means or resources to keep it going. And the rip between what's happened in this psychedelics experience and they're, tr- they're almost like re-traumatized mm-hmm. as, the, as the clinical trial ends. You know, so she's like, they're worse off sometimes six months later than they were, uh, you know, even prior to the trial. And so that really concerns me. And so I said, well, what are you doing? And she says, I'm, I I can no longer uh, really advocate for kind of one-on-one psychedelic therapy. I'm only advocating for group work. And I said, wow. She says, yes, because what happens is people attach to their peers not to the facilitator or therapist. They attach to the, the people that they're not paying. These are mm-hmm. just their, the people in the group and yeah. they become the place that mirrors back to them in this limbic resonance space. And they become the people that help them integrate. And that's what good looks like because that's how our ancient cultures have done it for mm-hmm. thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is a really important thing that you're bringing up, that psychedelics are a beautiful tool that are coming up again uh, in this resurgence, but they need to be done in a healthy context in, in these safe spaces. And so uh, I think uh, you offer some, some a lot of good material on how to integrate this, even though this book isn't necessarily talking about psychedelics, it's talking about uh, emotional processing and unrest. This is exactly what psychedelics is doing. It's helping you do emotional processing and dealing with the somatic experience uh, of, of what it means to navigate your interior space. And just the, I think the takeaway um, out of all of that is, is that we are meant to be 
experiencing our lives, not to be living in an idea about them. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. that is why we're here. And, um, you know, I, I, I do understand, um, particularly with, with trauma that the conditions that would allow someone to do this work with me in the office, um, might not be in place for some people because the a human was the source of the problem. And so I do see quite a place for with all this scaffolding beforehand and then the psychedelic experience how that could awaken the um uh, life force really in a person for you know being able to reach toward another person while their default mode network is down the narrator's mm -hmm. quiet and they can be experiencing really i'm in a space with another human and everything's okay mm -hmm. I, i'm mm -hmm. i'm I'm here with another, there's pain and everything's okay. At the same time, that complexity holding all of that. Mm -hmm. So, mm. yeah, like yeah. E even when we, you know, when we teach people about what it's like to, uh, to do a group trip experience. So we bring in, you know, therapist, RCC, you know, registered clinical counselors and, um, people trained by an organization called Theracil, which is a nonprofit that trains physicians and counselors on how to work with psilocybin. And one of the things that, you know, they do in their training is, is they say, you're going to have to step aside as the therapist and, and defer to the inner healing intelligence of the individual. Mm -hmm. There is psilocybin. What it does is it, it kind of takes your default mode network, this part of your brain that's always moving, 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 and it gets it to kind of settle down and your mm -hmm. inner healing intelligence, this part of you that wants to bring you to rest, that wants to bring you to balance. It's the same process in sense in our biology when we cut our finger. There's a natural clotting mechanism that just happens. You don't have to think about it or will it or, you know, cognitively, you know, what I got to clot my finger right now. It just happens. Our body wants to do that. And mm -hmm. so the theory is that there is an inner healing intelligence inside of each one of us that once the clouds kind of shift, there is the sun is still there. Whether we are under the weather, we can't see the sun. It's there. And, and psilocybin helps take away the kind of fog or the cloud for a minute, allows you for your inner healing intelligence to come online and begin to show you the paths, opportunities, patterns that need to be broken, emotions that need to be felt, uh, stories that need to be processed. And I think that's really kind of so in line. I, I look at this book as a training manual for people that want to get into the work with, with, uh, with altered states and with psychedelics. This is the kind of work they need to learn to do. Embrace unrest and navigate the somatic emotions that people are coming, how to come up with and how to sit with them. How to teach people to sit with difficult emotions in a group and not try to fix, not try to one up. So there's some really beautiful, uh, you know, material here as, as kind of a, a training uh, for, for people that want to do this work. It, it feels very coherent between what it is you're doing and, and, and this, uh, this message that I have, which is that there is this wisdom in the body, mm -hmm. this intelligence, this, this animal is sentient. It has mm -hmm. different knowledge than your brain, but very, very useful, different knowledge. And it is, um, you know, once, it, once it's assured that, mm -hmm. you know, danger is not imminent, it's, thrilled to hand mm. it over to headquarters, right? It only hijacks you. The body only hijacks you 
if there's danger and you want it to. My reaction times are a lot faster when I'm not thinking. Mm -hmm. If I need to get out of the way of that oncoming truck as I'm making a left-hand turn, it's better that I'm hijacked because my ability to get out of the way is going to be better than if I'm trying to analyze the angle of the turning radius, <laughs> right? So, but once the animal knows this is not actually immediate threat to life and limb, um, so that's, I, I just want to say, fear is your friend, you mm -hmm. know, and if you're in danger, run. And fear is not a future event or a past event. And fear is not a feeling or a thought. Fear is an immediate physical, I need to say this, immediate physical threat to life and limb. That is the only thing that's fear. People use the word, I'm afraid of failing the exam. I'm afraid that person doesn't like mm. me. I'm afraid, um, you know, to think about what happened yesterday. None of that is fear. That's anxiety. So it's so important to differentiate differentiate fear from everything else. And it's your friend. And when fear, when it's fear, run, obey. Yeah. But we're very rarely in immediate danger, at least here right now in the West. I mean, there's many places in the world where there's immediate threat, Pakistan, mm -hmm. you know, Iran, Ukraine. Um, but, you know, it, for many of us in our fortunate lives, physical danger is not a, a regular mm -hmm. daily event. Um, so, but the physiology of fear is the same as the physiology of unrest, which is the same as the physiology of anxiety. Hmm. And this is where I, how do you I just, came up, how do you yeah, yeah, yeah. take us into that? Cause I know you, yeah. you mentioned that in the beginning and I think it's really Super appropriate important. now. Yeah. So really. navigate those three for us. So, so unrest, so fear is the truth about danger, period, full stop. Okay. Unrest is the truth about vulnerability and vulnerability is important because, um, well, because it's a fact right? It is simply, I think it's the fact of life. You long for things and you don't have ultimate control over the outcome. You have some say, you can nudge things sometimes, you can, you know, get the odds in mm -hmm. a certain direction, but you have limits to your ultimate control over the outcome. And that feels like something. And what that feels like is indistinguishable from fear, but what it is, is longing and limits crashing up against each other, inviting you to face that you're not omnipotent. All right. It's going to hurt, but it's good for you. Anxiety is an exit from the discomfort of unrest. It's the narrative. It's all the lies. Oh, you do have control. If you just were taller, faster, slimmer, happier, richer, different, right? You should have control. Um, you, you know, here, if you worry about it, if you, um, you know, I don't know, all the different things that I tell myself uh, that are essentially denying whatever would move me toward the pain of this truth. So the woulda, shoulda, coulda, all the regret, all the, you know, what ifs, um, a lot of self-attacking language, you know, you, you know, you're this, you're that, you're that. It's all a narrative to say, you actually could have controlled the outcome. You just suck because you didn't. Mm. Um, so this is critical because these narratives have become so, you know, congruent for us, egocentric is a word, but the, that that the, they, we we're listening to this, you know, beat in the background all the time, and it just feels like it just feels like who I am. It just feels like the truth. To be able to pull the veil away, I think this is called unveiled, but to yeah. to pull back the veil and see that that narrative is removing you from the truth because you know there's something in us that that 
really fears that we can't bear the pain of the truth, that that it, we've mistaken vulnerability for danger, that bottom line, we are mistaking the truth of our limits to control for a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. And so we exit into anxiety, into these movies and stories um, that are threatening, catastrophic, shaming, and we suffer, we suffer. So Fear is the truth about danger. Unrest is the truth about vulnerability. And it's just physiology. There's no narrative. If mm. you're doing unrest, if you're embracing it, there's no story. All right. The minute you hear yada, 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 you're you're already gone. Okay. You're gone. And that's suffering. And that, you know, I think it's really important to, to understand unrest and fear are truth. And anxiety is a lie. It's a big mm. fat lie. And, and, your, and your mind is is giving you that lie. Oh yeah, and it's giving yeah. you that line with this um, overarching protective, yep. you know, kind wish that you don't feel pain, um, because you know what, suffering is not as intensely uncomfortable as pain. Let mm. me just kind of show you. Yeah, pain yeah, yeah. Pain is here, suffering's here, but pain is time limited, and then you come out the other side, as we talked about, and you can grow. Suffering is a flat line to hell forever. Wow. So there's no way out. But the kernel of truth in our inclination to choose the, you know, eating, drinking, shopping, exercising, controlling, worrying, scrolling, whatever. Um, the kernel of truth is I never ugh, have the excruciating gut-wrenching pain mm -hmm. of your sternum going to break. Um, it never gets that intense. So, yeah, I'm going to ride that out until I croak. So right. that's what we buy. We buy a lower intensity of discomfort, but there's no way off. It's a it's a highway with no off ramp. Yeah, you you said in your book, depression, your depression is not sadness. It's the inability to feel or something like that. I'm going to look it up here. Depression is not sadness. Uh, it is disconnection from what you feel. It's the emptiness that rushes in when you chronically suppress your feelings, saying it doesn't matter over and over and over in your life when what you feel doesn't matter eventually you don't matter and when you don't matter nothing matters wow that's an amazing understanding of this connection between our inability to feel and yeah. what it means to be depressed and i think yeah. if i could look around and we look at the rise of depression and anxiety in our culture it's yeah. just off the charts you know what was it in canada last year they took they said uh 43 percent of adults by the time of age 40 will be clinically depressed well that is just unbelievable that they will have that kind of diagnosis by the time they're 40 well that that is a pandemic worse than anything else our planet's ever seen right so you're you're connecting that to this inability to feel mm -hmm. and i'm connecting that that inability to feel between the lack of connection in smaller groups and and our on our so you know i'm i'm putting one more step and saying well the reason we can't feel is we don't have people that can hold our feelings anymore so we're just alone trapped in this you know solip solipsic what is that word you know this this kind of solipsistic yes there it is solipsistic <laughs> process where i'm just staying in my own mind um, you know, anxiety comes up and then I, oh, I can't feel that. I just kind of, you know, suppress it by all my, all my behaviors that are going to distract me. And so I can't feel anymore. Alcohol being the worst, you know, mm -hmm. out of any drug mm -hmm. in our culture, the reason that, you know, alcohol has been done so well is that it's a great suppressant of like, <laughs> we don't have to feel right. It works. <laughs> it works. 
And and then we think, oh, isn't that great? I just didn't have my, and we have shirts that just celebrate, you know, wine moms, you know, I'm going to drop my kids off. And and I get it because it's kind of funny and a joke, but that, when we look at that, you know, I'm like, I would way rather have people that use plant medicines that take you into your body. Like mm-hmm. cannabis mm-hmm. and psilocybin are plant-based medicines that push you to feel more, not less. Mm-hmm. You can you can use them in a way that open you up emotionally rather than suppress it. And so I I uh, I just love your your framework from uh, of of why emotion and motion processing is so vital for our culture if we want to move forward. So um, yeah, and you give us a way to do that. It's very practical here on how you on how you write this. Um, I want to jump into, you have a comment about education and uh, I, I, it's just right near the end, but um, my wife's a grade uh, five teacher and she's also a therapist. And so I read her this uh, paragraph and she almost burst into tears because over the last 10 years, she, after she did her master's, she did her master's in social emotional learning and how to create a trauma informed classroom. And all that, all the research around that wasn't, oh, here's how you do that. All of it was going back to the educator themselves and saying, it's impossible. It isn't even an option in our education system. If we think we can put out uh, uh, kids from our system without emotionally regulated educators, we can't do it. We cannot have children uh, in uh, classrooms with a dysregulated adult, an adult that's anxious, that's fearful, that's scared. And then so you have a dysregulated population of teachers coming into classrooms. Then you have a pandemic that takes Mm -hmm. them from a six to a nine. And then and then you're saying, okay, go teach these kids who are already, um, you know, vulnerable and scared and, and nervous. Well, it's an absolute nightmare in classrooms across British Columbia right now, and I would say across our planet. And so what you say is this, education is more than teaching children information. It's also developing their capacities, especially for emotional regulation. Teachers are the vehicle through which these competencies are transmitted, but we've been asking them to grow children's abilities without first investing in teachers themselves These capacities are experiential and embodied and must be grounded in the teacher's ability to notice and soothe her own bodily signals. To learn, children need to be with an optimal window of arousal, stimulated enough to pay attention, unlike Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 but also calm enough to concentrate. These are physical experiences. A teacher's unregulated unrest sends unconscious signals to students that disrupt their sense of safety. How can teachers convey to children that they need to settle down if they are unconsciously vibrating mix of unrest and anger? Teachers are who connected to their inner experiences, use their own bodies as a tuning fork, their capacity to transmit joy and excitement and their capacity to calm themselves down, form a foundation for entraining students' physiology. Wow. that I would love to send that paragraph to the Minister of Education and say, what if you invested a quarter of your budget into help regulating teachers so that our classrooms change from places where kids cry and have stomach aches and, and are freaking out before they go to school to places that they want to be and are excited mm-hmm. because they have teachers that are regulated and are know how to become a tuning fork for their, for their children. Can you comment on that? What, what drove you to write that 
um, because I know I think you have a friend that was an educator or something, but that to me was a profound uh, uh, understanding of, of how broken our education system is. Well, I, I think it's, a, a, I see it as in parenting, in the, the healthcare, like really across the board, it comes back to your um, deep wisdom around gathering and connection that everything you're talking about is is uh, is nested you know within this sense of as humans we are tuning forks for each other and we can amplify the good um if we if we know how to be connected to ourselves we can resonate we can create a, a a sense in someone else's nervous system that we're safe that this is a safe place um, and so whether that's your physician giving you some very difficult diagnosis and they're not shut off like a, mm. an automaton, um, you know, whether it's, a, you know, all that Brene Brown stuff about leading as a, as a true leader is to be vulnerable. That means that you can be touched, you can be moved, you're not needing to be the invincible, untouchable Um uh, but I just think it's a special condition with children because children are special and they're developing and we could, you know, be going upstream and, and, and averting a lot of these later problems that people come into my office with. Um, if, if we had a way of cultivating um, our teachers, but that would mean supporting them. That would mean investing in them. That would mean actually regarding them as people and not, I don't know, widgets or <laughs> cogs or something, you know, um, the actual humans that, um, you know, and I would say the same with parenting. I think, again, back to this loss of the community, um, you know, so many patients I work with, their their family isn't in Vancouver, you yeah. know, they're somewhere else. So they have no extended family to support them. We don't have the kind of support culturally, as you're pointing out, that we need, that we've had forever in our little gatherings around the campfires, Um and so um, I just I think it's a, a paradigm shift, really, that we're talking about. I think that is what Gabor is talking about, too, mm -hmm. that, you know, he's he's pulled the camera way back. And of course, I'm up close with my little magnifying glass because I'm working within the individual because the I do experience the, the 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 single individual human in front of me. I experience that person as a community. So, mm -hmm. so um, you know, I do have a sense of there's a consciousness uh, inhabiting a body, the body generously providing itself as a vehicle for consciousness. Um, as I like to say, the body wins or you die. So we really should listen and that we should be respectful and loving and taking care of it and doing what is our job, which is soothing it. Because once it's soothed, once it's no longer on its prime directive job mm -hmm. of survival, this animal really wants to taste and smell and feel everything. Um, and our lives could be so rich and our capacity to be tuning forks, all of that stuff mm. begins within the individual who, and the individual isn't, um, isn't, uh, you know, uh, isn't a puree. It's, it's more like a, a vegetable soup where you can see the soup, the consciousness is the holding. And then we have all these different aspects of ourselves and to have this sense of the complexity of who we are. I don't know. I'm I'm rambling now, but there's there's a, a vision that I have mm. about I'm almost doing couples therapy when a person comes in the door that I want to help you get into a relationship mm. as a as a consciousness in this animal and feel its love for you and feel your love for it and um have that as the ground from which you connect to others. 
I love that. That is such a beautiful vision for the world. You you talk about right near the end. You talk about the joy of being alive, right? This that that the working with unrest in our body and and investing in that process. And I I just want to like this is this has been the most radical shift for me in my life in the last five years is is that psychedelics opened me up to somatics. It I uh. didn't I didn't have a connection with my body. My body was just a tool. I could yeah. run up mountains and do stuff and do sports and, but I wasn't listening to it. It was just a thing that I was, my, my brain was in charge of, right? Yeah. Um, psychedelics broke that open. And, 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 and what they do is they, they, it, all of a sudden this flood of information came from the bottom up and my mind was quiet. Like the mind had nothing to do with, there's no story, nothing. It was just, here's what my body's telling me, you know? And like I told you that story of my jaw, like, you know, my, at least, and it's like, when I was on my psychedelic trip, I all of a sudden I had this memory and I was like, oh, right. When I was eight years old, I had a Sunday school teacher slap me across the face so hard because I interrupted him. I was an ADD little boy trying to tell a parable of Jesus. And I was so animated and excited because I knew the answer. And the teacher said, I said, no interrupting and slapped me so hard. I knocked off the chair and I started crying. And I felt such shame around that holding my jaw and face. And, and in, during my psychedelic trip, that story came up. I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? And I started to process that during my trip. And I realized that there was all this shame and there's a whole bunch of story around it, but it began to go, that's where, you know, the signal you've got, let me tell you what's going on there. When I talked to my parents about it later, who now they're in their eighties. And I said, do you remember in like 1978 or whatever, when this, they're like, oh yeah, I remember that happened. Oh yeah. And I'm like, wow, like that's been sitting in my body a long time and I didn't really understand it. And now I'm working with it. And so this gift of, of embodiment and the, the, there's, and there's lots of great authors doing this work. The body keeps score. Yes. Dr. Hillary McBride, uh, the wisdom of the, of your body, a beautiful yes. book. I really recommend that. That was really helpful for me. Peter Levine's work on yes. somatic experiencing. So there's, there's lots of work being done. I really like your book because it's so practical and I really want people to go out and buy it because you can, it's not just a, you're not just in a head exercise, understanding theory. You're, you're in there and you're saying, okay, boom, let's stop. Here's a practice, track this, do this, get into your body, feel this, take a breath, feel the unrest, work with that. What it's telling you, how do you, how do you sit with that emotion? You know, and you have this so many, uh, there's so many beautiful trailheads that you can explore from the book. And, um, and there's so many, you know, jumping off points. And uh, it reminded me, I'm now jumping off, but have you heard of a book by Francis Weller? It's called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Um, no. If you haven't, you go, oh, you got to pick it up. You'll really like it. So Francis Weller, uh, I think he's a, I think he's a therapist, but a spiritual director, but he really spends a lot of time in what he what he calls a grief and um and sorrow and longing and he talks about that these are really important avenues for us to explore in our life because they open up so much emotional content for us to sit and process and work with and so I found his, uh, he has these five gates to the city of of kind of grief and they're not just loss of like people, loved ones in our life. It's loss of dreams, loss of relationships, loss of jobs, loss of, uh, things that we wanted to accomplish. And, you know, all sorts of losses. Our life is full of losses. And you talk so much about, you know, mm -hmm. unprocessed grief, 
And mm-hmm. so when you when I got mm-hmm. into that part of it, I was like, oh, she she's gonna love Francis Weller stuff. So yeah, uh, so there's a little a little. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to chat with you about that one day. But um, yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I get excited. Mattering in your body, like I think the mm-hmm. the like the. I, I always say human suffering boils down to to two problems. We don't like something, and we want it to change. Mm-hmm. Um or we really, really, really like something and never want it to change. Mm. And that's it. That's all it is. So it's longing and limits because we can't change things in our timing and in our way perfectly. And we can't hold on to anything. Mm. As you say, loss is the way of Mm. things, change is the way of things. So we are uh, every day confronted with these these limits to our control. And the pain of that, um, we are... um, you know, very involuntarily, it's not our fault, it's not weakness, it's not failure, we are actually wired, you know, to move away from pain. And so I feel like, you know, it's it's the most difficult thing to, to ask people to do. I know you were mentioning alcohol earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are looking for a quick fix, we're looking for something that you, you don't have to keep doing. Um, you know, your program with 12 weeks is a big commitment and then asking people afterwards to continue the integration. And yet that's the reality of mm-hmm. it is that, you know, that that this we, we return again and again and again, and that that's how the change happens. And we're up against these sort of immediate gratification. I just want the quick fix, the pill, the 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 alcohol, the, the, the one time one and done thing. But this thing about being able to go toward what doesn't feel good and stay there. There's this miracle that happens when we matter, when we don't feel good. I mean, it's easy to care about myself when I'm at the top of my game, right? Who doesn't want to know her? Mm -hmm. She's doing great. Right. But when I'm down, when I'm on my knees, when I'm in that position of surrender, when it's not my will, um, it's not pouring out of my nose. I can't. I call it the place of I can't. I'm, I, I've hit my head against that brick wall and it's not moving and I've got a headache now. I can't. Mm-hmm. That's when we don't want to know that person, right? That's when we don't want to be there. We want to tell a story about what have shoulda, coulda, or blame the world or blame ourselves. But to actually open our hearts then, open our hearts then, love yourself there in the place mm-hmm. of I can't. That's the transformation, in that moment where I cannot make it be as I want it to be, and I still matter, that changes everything. That does. Yeah. Wow. Um, Sandra, there you're such a good writer, and I, I just love how you turn phrases. Do you mind reading the last paragraph of your book uh, out loud uh, to me? Because it's, um, and maybe you want to take a couple sentences before, but um you you really talk about this, you know, right at the end, you talk about, you know, the technology for transformation is at your fingertips. It's in the nerve fibers and muscles and blood of your body. Signaled by unrest, your point of contact with vulnerability heralds your invitation to matter in the precise moment of, of uncertainty and limits uh, reveal you as a human. And then at the end, you say to live, to love. Can you pick it up there? I just want to hear your voice, read that final paragraph. Uh, or or anything else you want to read there, but I just you're you're a really good writer, and I want you to just to feel into that writing for a second for us. Oh, <laughs> to live, to love, to care is vulnerable. You long for things, and you cannot ultimately secure them. Impermanence makes every evanescent moment shimmer. 
And all this tenderness is what makes your human experience so radiant and meaningful and transformative. Lean toward yourself in your vulnerability and experience the joy of reunion as your body welcomes you home and your soul is liberated to feel life. You are always but a moment, a half breath away from the loving light of your awareness meant to soothe your body. Embrace unrest, harness vulnerability, and spark growth. Sandra, like I'm... Like I'm so moved by your language because you're you're nailing into you're just tapping into the heartbeat of what I long for. I want to create communities like this. People are longing for this. I meet them every day. They don't have connection. They don't know how to navigate their emotions. They're feeling so lost. And you're offering a sense of hope here that the hope for them, their their answers lie inside of their own yeah. body. You don't need more, you know, you don't need more education or the next thing. It's right here beneath your own skin. And I just, I, I love it with the way you started this, this interview was this calling to come back home to your own body. And I've, I've found that place and it has changed my life. And, uh, it doesn't mean life is easy all the time, but it, no, <laughs> I begin to know where home is now. I can get out of the narratives in my head that tell me this, I'm not enough. I'm not enough here. I'm not this enough. I'm not this enough. And I can get out of those narratives and come back to my home and say, oh, I am enough right here. I'm enough. And so, oh, Sandra, thank you so, so much. Beautiful. Mm. You just touched my heart so deeply. I couldn't have, I mean, what you just shared with me, I mean, that's why I wrote the book. I don't, I, I mean, I'm, without words i'm so moved that is mm. for you to have that experience i'm just um grateful 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 mm. well thank you so much sandra this has been uh, a beautiful conversation and i i just love uh, i love your book and i really hope that this uh, i know this has been a long process for you to write this book uh, i i hope that you you know you you enjoy it and you you we can push this out and get people to read it and, and engage it and i'll do whatever i can to to kind of uh, help you do that but I also hope that you keep writing, that you don't give up writing, because I think you've got a real gift there, uh, a way to make ideas simple and make ideas engage us with our heart. And that's what we really need today. And so uh, thank you for all the work you're doing, Sandra, both in Vancouver with your practice and now with this uh, embracing unrest, harness vulnerability to tame anxiety and spark growth. Uh, Sandra Parker, thanks so much for being on Unveiled today. Thank Any closing so thoughts much. for you? <laughs> I'm I'm actually so moved with gratitude. I don't have a, a proper thought in my head. It's a big uh, puffy feeling in my chest that's upward and outward and uh, expansive and mm. uh, and full. So thank you. Oh, I'm I feel the same thing. I feel like uh, I feel like I found a new friend, and I think <laughs> I think too. you and I are going to be <laughs> connecting a lot more. And I uh, hope so. Yeah, I could really use your wisdom uh, as as we kind of journey forward. So let's let's have another conversation shortly. You bet. Thank you okay. so much. Thanks me. a lot. Okay, have a great day. You too.